Dear Heavenly Father, we, we love You, Lord. And we thank You that in You there is life, there is love. You guide us, Lord. You lead us in the right way. You teach us, comfort us, God. You discipline us when necessary. And thank You that You have made the way, God, and that one day we will stand before You face to face and we will rejoice. And I don't know whether we'll dance or fall to our faces, God, but we will praise You. And we will honor and glorify You, God. But the, the beauty of it all is that we can do that here and now. And so we do, Lord. We, we lift up Your name. We praise You in this place. We magnify You, God. And we honor Your Word. And You have said that heaven and earth would pass away, but Your Word would not. And that You would exalt Your Word above Your own name. So I pray that here and now, Father, You would honor Your Word, that You would speak to us, that Your Holy Spirit would move mightily in this room in the hearts and the minds of, of everyone, including myself, God. So please speak to us, encourage us, minister to us, Lord. Discipline us if necessary. And be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so as I had already stated, Paul is in his second missionary journey at this point. There are three missionary journeys recorded for us in the book of Acts. And we believe that there were four total. Paul went on and finally kind of died at the end of the fourth missionary journey. He was uh, beheaded under Caesar Nero's reign. And so at this point, we are in his, his second journey. And... Uh, Last week, you'll recall, he was in Philippi, and that was just a, a radical time of ministry. And then he was beaten and imprisoned, and then he was miraculously... Well, there was a, a, a miracle that took place, and the, the doors broke open, and the chains fell off, and well, they did not escape. They didn't leave. And as a result of all of this, the, the jailer and his whole household were saved, and long story short, they were set free and the, the magistrates came and begged them to please leave when they found out that they were Roman citizens and that they had unlawfully tried them and beaten them. So Paul greeted the brothers there at Lydia's house in Philippi and then he, he departed from there. And that's where we pick up in the story here in chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not many of the few leading women joined, excuse me, not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So this was Paul's approach. Everywhere he went, he would go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And you'll recall when he went into Philippi, there was no synagogue. So he went to the river and he found some, some women there praying. And uh, those were the first converts in Philippi. So now he has gone on to Thessalonica and evidently there's a large Jewish community here. So Paul, true to form, goes to the synagogue and begins to preach Christ from the Old Testament. Now, I titled this, The Knowledge of God. The Knowledge of God. And you'll see why as we get into it. 
Today, Paul is going to be preaching uh, Christ in Athens. And he gives a masterpiece of a sermon on God, the, the nature of God, the character of God. And we'll talk more about that as we get there. But, uh, you know, I'm reading a book right now by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. In the opening statement of the book, he says probably one of the most important things about us is what we believe about God. And I would agree with that statement. That's a, that's a, a, a very complex statement. But I would say that it is the most important thing because, honestly, your soul depends upon it, first and foremost. But then even beyond that, as a believer, our perception of God, our understanding of God, really does change uh, how we interact with God. It affects how we live our, our lives as Christians day to day. And it's, it's such an important thing to have an accurate understanding of God. And Paul does such a wonderful job of setting that forth. And as I said, he, he always preaches in the synagogues, and when he does, he goes to the Old Testament because they already believe uh, in the, the Bible. There only was the Old Testament at that time, what we refer to as the Old Testament now. And so that was their authority, and he would go there, and then he would demonstrate from that that Jesus indeed was the Christ. He was the Messiah who was to come to suffer and to die for the people and today, as we see, he's going to go off into territory that is, they're not uh, Jews, and, and he's going to have a totally different approach. But ultimately, the objective is always to bring about a full and thorough understanding of God. And so, as I said, I've titled this The Knowledge of, of God, and this has become a very special subject for me. I take seminary classes here and there, and one of the classes I took not too long ago was called Theology Proper. And theology, you hear, it's a term you hear me use quite a bit, but that simply means the study of God. And there can be many subcategories under theology when we talk about the Holy Spirit, the, the study of the Spirit, that's pneumatology, or bibliology, the study of the Bible, or Christology, the study of Jesus. But theology proper is strictly God. God the Father, His character, His nature, His essence, His attributes. And Paul does a masterful job of laying that out today. And so as I have studied that more and I've begun to understand more of, in a more systematic fashion the character and the nature and the essence of God according to the Scriptures, I love it. It's such a wonderful topic. And uh, to, to have a better understanding of our Heavenly Father, it's, it's worth more than, than gold. It's worth more than any, any treasure. So I love the sermon that Paul preaches today, and um, I look forward to getting into it. So with that, let's, uh, let's move. We're told that he was there for three Sabbaths. Because of that, some people believe that Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks. It says that he, was, uh, he preached for, for three Sabbaths, and then we know persecution arises, and then Paul has to move on from there, but um, something that I've recently come to find is that there are a lot of people who don't believe that. They believe that Paul preached in the synagogues for three Sabbaths, and then his ministry to the Jews kind of ended as it normally does, but that he was in Thessalonica for several months, and there are a number of reasons why we, why we uh, would think that to be the case. He receives gifts from the Philippian church, at least two, while he is here in Thessalonica, You'll know, notice when he writes to the Thessalonian church, First and Second Thessalonians, 
the things that Paul tackles, the, the kind of theology that he addresses, it is so complex. And generally we would say, wow, how in the world he was there for three weeks and already he's, he's having to write to them about things like this and answer questions. It makes more sense in the light of the fact that he was probably there for a good four to six months. So I just thought I'd hit on that as we move through. But Paul is proving, he is demonstrating from the law that Jesus indeed was the foretold one. He was the Messiah who would come into the world, who would suffer, and then who would die and, and raise again, rise again from the dead. Well, persecution breaks out. Verse 5, But the Jews were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city which they, uh, when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Alright, so the, the Jews who had not been persuaded by Paul and Silas, the unbelieving Jews, they were envious. So they went to the marketplace and they took evil men, unbelieving, pagan men, and they basically sought to incite somewhat of a riot here. It says that they're envious. The envy is a, is a, a wicked thing. Um, you know, jealousy, I mean, these are things that I think we all struggle with on some level from time to time. You look at someone else and you see something that they have, you wish you had that, that's jealousy, right? But envy is you wish that person didn't have it. And it's a whole, it's a deeper level, it's a whole other level of, of jealousy. And we all have to be so very careful about that. But these Jews, they saw the success that Paul was having and they were envious of this. They didn't want them to have this success. So they actually went and brought in pagans to incite a mob and try to, to overthrow all that was happening here. And then they came with this accusation that these men are trying to, uh, to uphold another king, a king other than Caesar. This is one of the most dangerous accusations that could be made. It's treason. You know, Everybody had to honor Caesar and that was the problem for the Christians is they weren't willing to worship Caesar. Caesar. They wouldn't offer incense to him. You, know, you could worship all kinds of gods, but you had to honor Caesar above them all. And the Christians would not do that. And so ultimately a lot of them were persecuted. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was uh, burned alive for that very reason his unwillingness to worship Caesar. And so they're saying, you know, they're, they're representing a king other than Caesar here. And that's the very thing they did to Jesus when they were trying to twist Pilate's arm into having him crucified and Pilate didn't want to. They finally said, you know, this guy says that, that he's a king and you're no friend of Caesar if you let him get away with that. And at that point, Pilate just said, okay, you know what, I'm done. He washed his hands, he's yours. And so that's the, the same thing that's happening here. That's no small accusation to be made here. Well, they had went to Jason's house. We don't know much about this guy, Jason, other than evidently the Christians were staying in his house. It could be that uh, his house was a church. 
And so they went to his house looking for Paul and Silas. They couldn't find him, so they took Jason and they brought him in and said, this guy is harboring these guys, these Christians. And so they took a pledge or a security from Jason, basically ensuring that he would not at least harbor Christians or allow them to uh, stir up any more, more trouble. So once it got to this point, um, verse 10, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. Alright, so now Paul left Thessalonica and he went to Berea. Berea is not far from there, but he's still up in Macedonia. You'll re recall that he traveled from Asia up into Macedonia and he's, he's still there, not for long, but still there at this point. And we're told that these Bereans, they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. They heard what Paul had to say and then they searched the Scriptures for themselves. That is, that is beautiful. Okay, and that's a that's a lesson for all of us in here. And from this, you may have heard the term to be a Berean. So when you hear something, you don't necessarily just believe it because you heard it. You go to the scriptures yourself. You be a good student. You be a Berean and you check to see if these things are so. And I would encourage you to do that even with me and any good pastor would or should Say, don't just take my word for it. Go search the Scriptures. And that's why we, we do our best to show you from the Scriptures the things that, that we proclaim, the things that we preach. Um, but you should also be a student who goes and finds out for yourself. And maybe you don't believe. You know, there may have been people there who didn't believe it, but they were at least willing to check it out. And they did. And guess what? A lot of them believed as a result of that. And so that's a great encouragement for all of us as Christians. We should always be going to the Word of God to see if this or that be so. Our, our worldview, our belief on God, our stance on various things in, in this life ought to come from the Scriptures. And that is why we make such a big deal about the Bible. That's why that's, that's our mission statement. The first part of it here is to learn the Word of God. That's what we're about. We want to learn the Word, we want to live for Jesus, and we want to love others. And this is all, all I've got. I've got nothing but the Bible to give you. I desire to give you nothing else but the Bible. And there's nothing greater that I could give you. And so that's what we're about here. And I want what you believe, what you trust, what you cling to, to be developed from your understanding of the Scriptures. And we see that with... The Bereans. It's a beautiful example that they set. Well, verse 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go uh, to the sea. Both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So the Jews who stirred up a ruckus in Thessalonica came to Berea now to do the same thing. These guys were relentless. 
And, you know, it's interesting to consider, this is the very thing Paul was doing when he was Saul, you'll, you'll remember. Before he became a Christian, he was going from town to town and he was trying to have the Christians arrested. So the, the same thing that's happening to Paul now is the very thing that he was doing before he was uh, converted to Christianity. And, you know, these, these guys were zealous. These Jews, man, they were serious. Uh, so much so that it wasn't enough to just get Paul out of their town. They would go to the next town and the next town to see to it that, that Paul was sent out and that what he was doing would come to nothing. In fact, when he had been stoned in his first missionary journey, it was people from uh, a different town that came in and incited the people to, to rise up and try to kill Paul. And so Paul talks about this in Romans. You know, he says, I, I bear witness to my countrymen, my brethren, that they are zealous but not according to knowledge. And so they have a great zeal. They're passionate. They're excited. They're on fire, but for the wrong thing. They're ignorant in what they're doing. And so that's a, a strong word for us. We see, the, we see the, the passion with which these guys are pursuing Paul and trying to incite a riot and overthrow him and the persecution that comes up as a result of it, but they're dead wrong. They're dead wrong in their passion and their pursuit. And that's something that we have to check ourselves with. You know, where are we at? We may be very zealous, but zealous for what? Zealous for what? Are you zealous for the things of the Lord? Are you zealous for, for your own personal pursuits? Are you zealous for, you know, I mean, you just fill in the blank. I won't, I won't go there. But uh, I would encourage you, prayerfully consider, am I a zealous? Zeal is a wonderful thing. In fact, it's something that I think we could all use a little more of, generally speaking. Um, we don't want to be cold. We certainly don't want to be lukewarm. We want to be on fire. Amen? But we want to be on fire for the right thing. And so we should be a praying church and praying that indeed the Lord would give us a fire for the things that, that He is concerned with, the things that He is passionate about, that we would have broken hearts for the things that break His heart that we would have zeal according to knowledge. Well, Paul left Timothy and Silas. He was rushed out of Macedonia. Now he goes down into, into Greece. And so now he's traveling down into the territory below Macedonia, kind of where you would find Corinth, Achaia. Um, that's, that's where that's located. He goes ahead of Timothy and Silas and he does request that they catch up with him with all speed, but nonetheless, he goes out ahead of them. So verse 16, Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. But he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Alright, so Paul is by himself. He's here in Athens. This doesn't appear to be part of the original plan that he had. And it happened really quickly and he got forced out of Thessalonica by the brothers and he went ahead by himself and here he is in Athens and so he's kind of touring the place probably never been here before 
And he's seeing the amount of, of idolatry in this place. All the, the pagan temples and idols and statues. And we're told that he was provoked in his spirit. He was agitated. He was stirred up. It was extremely troubling to him to, to see this and to witness this. At this point in history, Athens was way past its prime, way past its zenith. But it was still very well known for its culture, its philosophy, its uh, religion. And a lot of very famous philosophers had come through here, such as Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. I'm sure you've heard all of those names. Aristotle probably was the most prominent of the philosophers, and if I'm not mistaken, he was actually a, uh, a tutor or a teacher to Alexander the Great. There were a couple of other very prominent philosophers and they're mentioned, their followers are mentioned here in the text. Epicureans and Stoics. And so this comes from Epicurus. This was one of the philosophers. And then Zeno was another philosopher. And uh, the philosophy that he pushed and his followers were known as Stoics. It was Stoicism. Epicureanism and Stoicism. And these are the people that encounter Paul and they're kind of confused by what Paul is is putting forth to them and some of them are like, I don't know, this is kind of strange what this guy's talking about. And other people are like, man, what is this babbler talking about? So, so who are these people, the Epicureans? In your notes there, <clears throat> the Epicureans, their chief principle was the avoidance of pain or the, the pursuit of pleasure. That's what they lived for. No pain, no discomfort, and it was all about if it feels good, do it, living for the pursuit of pleasure. And that's, you know, that's very prevalent in the day and age that we live in. They were materialistic. They were living for the, I would say, the here and now, although that was there and then. And they didn't deny the existence of God, but they, they didn't believe that God was involved with the affairs of men. And that when man died, ultimately the body and the soul just disintegrated and that was the end of them. So that was the Epicureans. The Stoics taught self-mastery, self-discipline. Uh, they believed that coming to a place of indifference towards pain or pleasure was the ultimate goal. That's why you, you refer to someone as very Stoic. They're just very indifferent. They're not moved by, by much of anything. And so that was their, their chief objective, was to basically ascend above all of that and they have no real uh, loyalties to anything that would, would cause them to have great joy or pain. They were just detached from it. And then they say, what is, this, what is this babbler talking about? What is this babbler saying? And that's significant here, the word babbler. In your notes, again, it literally means seed picker. Seed picker. And some of the philosophers viewed Paul as an amateur philosopher, one who had no ideas of his own but only picked among prevailing philosophies and constructed one with no depth. And again, we do see a lot of that in the day and age that we live in. Now, out of these two people, the Epicureans, I would say that's kind of the prevailing philosophy. I don't see so many Stoics around as I you know, um, am venturing out. But uh, I do see a lot of people who are seed pickers. They, they look at a lot of different kinds of philosophies and isms, and they say, well, I like that, I definitely don't like that, I like that, and they just kind of put something together that fits them, something to their liking. And uh, the very thing that they're accusing Paul of here is really what I think we see more than anything in the day and age 
that we live in. And so it's interesting that they are uh, making this accusation against Paul as a, a seed picker here, a, a babbler, uh, one who is putting forth shallow and strange things. So they're intrigued. So verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear something new. So Paul was brought to the Areopagus. And this is also known as Mars Hill. You may have heard it referred to as such. The Areopagus was an open space named after the hill upon which it sat. And the, the elite philosophers and the authorities of that day and age they would meet there at this place and do a number of things, but they would even hold court. And that's kind of what is happening here. They bring Paul here not to try him, but because they, they want him to elaborate on the things that he's preaching and they want him to kind of defend it a little bit. So here Paul is on Mars Hill or the, the Areopagus, and he's going to set forth this sermon. And so this is where we kind of enter into the sermon at the end of this sermon, it doesn't appear like there's a lot of fruit to what Paul preaches. And people actually criticize Paul a little bit here because you're going to see he actually quotes some of their poets. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And people say, you know, this was kind of a different approach for Paul. And Paul was getting a little cute here. And as a result, it backfired on him. And it wasn't a very profitable or, or fruitful uh, venture, but I, I would disagree with that. I mean, this is a masterpiece of a sermon, as I said already. And he's not preaching to the Jews where their authority is already grounded in the, the Torah. Uh, he's dealing with a totally different crowd. And Paul attempts to, on some level, use certain things that would be relevant to, to them as he makes his point. So I think it's, uh, he does a, a really awesome job here. <clears throat> so with that, Verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, Him I proclaim to you. So Paul found his end. As he was going through and he saw all the multitude of, of false gods and idols, he saw something with an inscription to the unknown God. Now he starts by saying, look guys, I, I perceive you to be religious people. And so he's not offensive at all with his approach. In fact, he kind of almost starts by patting them on the back a little bit. Hey, you guys are, are religious and I saw this and it stood out to me. The word religious here, it means in fear of gods. And so he, he uses that as a launching space, so to speak. Now, the, the idea here of the unknown God. In your notes, there's a quote, Guzik. He says, 600 years before Paul, a terrible plague came on the city and a man named Epimenides had an idea. He let loose a flock of sheep through the town and whenever they lay down, they sacrificed that sheep to the God that had the nearest shrine or temple. If a sheep lay down near no shrine or temple, they sacrificed the sheep to the unknown God. 
So that, these people were very careful. They didn't want to, want to leave any, any gods out. Okay? They wanted to honor and acknowledge them all. And this guy Epimenides, if that is how you pronounce his name, it sounds right to me, um, he, he came up with this idea, and supposedly that's where this came from, the, the idea of the, the unknown God. <clears throat> this guy's name is going to come up a few more times as we work our way through this. So it's a little bit of an introduction to him. He was a philosopher in his day. Well, Paul seizes on that. This is his opportunity. He says, I'm going to proclaim to you who this unknown God is. And Paul's going to make very clear that he indeed is the God, the only God, the one true God. So verse 24. It says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives life uh, excuse me, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So Paul preaches a big God. Paul has a big God theology. I love that. And I desire that for myself. God is God. He is the Lord. He is the Creator. He is the Master of all things. He is not subservient to us in any way. He does not ask our permission for anything. He is not surprised. He is not thrown off. He is not confused. He is not weak. His hand is not so short that He cannot save. He is the Almighty. He is the One, the Only, the Creator of all things. The eternal God who has existed from all of eternity past through all of eternity future, and He exercises total sovereign control over all of His creation. And Paul just launches right off from there. There is no God but our God. There is one God, the God who created all things. Because you know their, their idea was there were many different gods, and many of these gods fought against each other, and, and many of these gods over here may have even partnered together, but... It was just chaotic. And he said, no, there's only one God. He is the God above all things. And this God does not dwell in temples. It says that He cannot dwell in temples. And uh, that is the incontainability of God. God cannot be contained. God cannot be localized. You know, some people treat Him that way. God's here in this building, the church, and He's nowhere else. And a lot of people really, you know, that, that is very much their theology of God. He's in special places. But God is everywhere all the time. There's nowhere that we can go to escape God. And the Scriptures are very clear on that. Where can I go to escape your presence? Absolutely nowhere. And then the question is even asked in 1 Kings uh, you know, even the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. And will you dwell in a house built with hands? And so the incontainability of God. I love it. And then it says, He's not worshipped with men's hands as if He needed anything. But He gives life to all things. And the idea here is He's not worshipped with men's hands. Men would carve idols. Men would, would fashion an image of God and then they would worship that image. And Paul is saying that God is not brought down to that. God refused 
to, to have images made of Him. And I talked about this a few weeks ago, so I don't want to go too deep into that again. But it's ridiculous to think that, and I believe it was in Isaiah where it says, you cut down a tree, you use part of it to warm your house, part of it to cook your food, and then the last part to make a, a, a God for yourself, and you fall down and worship it and cry out, save me. Okay, and that's, it's ridiculous. And God said that you shall make no graven image, you shall worship no other God but me, and uh, God would not allow that to happen because you can't represent God uh, physically. Uh, you just can't. And even, as I said before, if you were able in some way to represent one aspect of God through a carved image, there are so many other aspects that are not being communicated that you are misrepresenting God. So God would not be worshipped with men's hands. And that's what it means uh, when it says that. But I love the point that he makes here, as if God needed anything from us. Did you know that? God does not need anything at all from us. And sometimes you may hear people talk like he does. And so uh, just understand that. And I'm going to use a theological term here. God has aseity. The aseity of God. That is to say, the self-sufficiency of God. He is totally sufficient in and of Himself and has been from all of eternity past in His Trinitarian being. Okay, God doesn't have some need within Himself to have fellowship with us. And He said, you know, I'm kind of lonely up here. I'm going to have to create somebody that I can fellowship with to meet this need that I have. That is simply not the case. We have to go outside of ourselves for life. You understand that? It says here that God gives life to all things. We have to go outside of ourselves for truth. We have to go outside of ourselves for knowledge. We have to go outside of ourselves for relationship and for emotional uh, you know, stability. We have to go outside of ourselves for sustenance, for food, for water, for uh, just to sustain life. God does not have to do that. God has life in Himself totally. Truth, life, knowledge, God has that. He has never not had that. He has, there's never a time when God has a need. God gives life. God gives truth. And it's found in Him and He has no need. God is a big God. Amen? And I love that about our God. And He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be worshipped. The fact that He didn't need us, but He still created us, and He still saved us because He is a good God and because He loves us and He desires to bless us. That is the goodness of God. Again, this is a theological idea here, but um, when we talk about the goodness of God, that doesn't just mean that, that He's nice or that you know, He's the opposite of bad. That means that He is, he is benevolent. It, it flows forth from Him to be generous. He, he generally desires the good and the welfare of those whom He has set His love and affection on. And that was true uh, in his, his Trinitarian being. God has always loved the Son. And God has always loved the Spirit. And God has always been perfectly loved by the Son and the Spirit. And that thing which has always existed, that perfect love, that perfect unity that has existed from all of eternity past, we've been invited into that. Okay, God created something to pour that out on. Not because He had a need to be met, but because He has something He desired to display. Something that He, had, he desired to dispense. And that is the, the self-sufficiency, the aseity 
of God, the goodness of God. All right. Um, we're told that uh, you know he made he made every nation from one blood, and we know this from the scriptures that God created man and woman. He created Adam and Eve, and all of the the world today has come from them. And he has determined and pre-appointed times and boundaries. God is absolutely in control of the rise and the fall of nations. Even where we are born and when we are born, all determined by God. God is absolutely in control. He's set these things in place. But God is near to His creation. Verse 27. Okay, God has done all this. And it says, "...so that they should seek the Lord." in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us, each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising." So, God has revealed Himself to man. God has created all things. God has created humans. God has revealed Himself as the Creator. And He has done that through creation itself, bears witness, but the Scriptures also teach that God has put eternity in the heart of man. Man knows that there is something more than just us. There is something more than this. There is a God. There is a Creator. And we are accountable to Him. And we should seek after Him. And, and God has set it up as such. We are to be people who, who seek after the Lord, who pr- uh, pursue the Lord, because He's not far from us. Okay, that was another thing that flew in the face of, of what the Epicureans, they believed. There is God, but He's just detached. Okay, He's not involved in the affairs of men. But here Paul says, no, no. God created all things. He created people and we're to seek after Him because He is near us. I love that. And this is the nearness and the knowability of God. And there are so many things that our minds cannot comprehend uh, regarding God. It's like the, the finite trying to understand the infinite. We simply cannot. But we can know God. The knowability of God. We can walk with Him. To, to some small degree, we can understand Him through His Word and through our experience with Him through His Spirit. And so we, we are to know this God. We are to know Him and to love Him. And then Paul quotes two of the, uh, their poets, two of their philosophers. One, he says, in Him we live and move and have our being. That is Epimenides, again. And then Aratus, he quotes, we are also His offspring. And so Paul is beginning to, to use some of their own uh, people to make the point. And then, verse 30, says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance to, of this to all by raising Him from the dead. So, God has been gracious and God in His forbearance overlooked, tolerated their ignorance to a point, to a degree, but has now commanded everyone everywhere to repent, 
to turn from their idolatry, to turn from their wickedness, and to turn to God. Because God has appointed a day that He will judge the world in righteousness. And we're told here, by the man whom He has ordained, speaking of Christ. So now, we've been given a full understanding. There was a time when all we, all we had was God's creation, and we had that which was in our own conscience. Right? I talked about that. But now, God has revealed Himself in the person of His Son. And we understand that is special revelation. There was general revelation that was given to us through creation, but now we've been given special revelation and we understand that there's coming a time when God will judge in righteousness by His Son. So Jesus, our Lord, came to save. The first time that He came, He came as a Savior. But He will come back a second time and He will come as a judge. And this is what stumbled the Jews. When He came, they thought that it was the conquering Messiah. It was both. The Messiah came to, to suffer and to die for the sins of the world to redeem His people, and He also came to conquer and to judge. And that they were confused by this. But Christ came to suffer, but He will come back to reign and to rule and to judge in righteousness at an appointed time that God has fixed. And now we have been commanded to respond. So God has created, He has revealed and we have been made accountable to Him. And God has validated this through the resurrection. That's what it, it says right there. He has given us assurance by raising Him from the dead. Again, as I have said many times over, that's like the bedrock of our faith is the resurrection of Christ. Jesus came. He made all of these claims. He did all of these miracles. And He said that He was going to die for our sins and then rise again from the grave. And when He rose from the grave, He proved that everything He said was true. And that indeed God had sent Him. He had come to do the will of the Father and that everything that He did was pleasing in the sight of God. God had accepted and received that and He validated it. He put His stamp of approval on it and Christ rose again from the dead proving that it indeed had been accomplished. And everything that God said that He was going to do moving forward, you best believe it's going to happen because of what God has already done in sending His Son and, and raising Him from the dead. You better believe that God will return to judge. And we have to, we have to respond to God in repentance. So I'll just, I'll just say that. Talked about the bigness of God, the, the goodness of God, the self-sufficiency of God, the, the sovereignty of God, all of these things, but the love of God. Why did God do this? Because He loves us. God demonstrated His love by sending His Son to die for us. And I, this is something I have to preach to myself regularly. I don't know about you, but from time to time I have to remind myself, you know, God really loves me. And how do I know that? How could God ever prove His love for you any more than He already has by sending His Son to die? What, must, what more must He do? What more must He prove to us? God loves us that much that He sent His Son to die for us so that we would put our faith and our trust in Him. We would be forgiven. We would be set free. That we would enter into a, a father son, daughter, son relationship with the Almighty, the Creator. No longer to be accountable for our sins or to be judged for our sins on the day of righteous judgment. It's a beautiful thing.
And we have that assurance by the resurrection. Well, verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, well, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite. That's a mouthful. A woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul had a little bit of success here. There were a few people that that, uh, seemed to come along. But some people said, I don't know. We'll hear you again on this. Other people said, this is crazy. I can't do it. And then one person, Dionysius... I guess he was part of the, the council that met on Mars Hill. He was an Areopagite. He converted and he became a Christian. And this lady, Damaris, as well. As I said, I don't think this was Paul's plan in the first place. But he, he went with it. An opportunity opened up in front of him and he preached the majesty of God. The, the bigness of God. And so let's, let's just close on that note. Joe's going to come up and and close with a song and we'll have a few people up front who will pray for you if you so desire. But uh, let's just worship God for who He is. He's God. He's holy. He is mighty. He is just. He is glorious. He is loving. He is good. He is sovereign. He is gracious. He is a judge, a God that will judge sin. He will not allow wickedness to go unpardoned. And I could just keep going on and on and on. That is our God and we love Him. We adore Him. Let's worship Him. Father, we, we praise You in this place. We thank You that You are a big God indeed. So much bigger than our small little finite minds could ever understand. We love You, Lord, and we worship You in the splendor of Your holiness, God, and we want to serve You with all that we are and all that we have. We want to surrender our lives to You fully, God. Receive our praise. Receive the the honor that we lift. May it ascend to the heavens, God. May it be a pleasing aroma to You. May You be enthroned upon the praises of Your people, O God. We love You, Lord, and we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.